and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. My name is Jack Benyon and we're here to mourn the end of the IndyCar season in full. <laughs> As I, I am genuinely sad that the season's come to end, it's been so exciting. As ever, my trusty co-host JR Hildebrand is here to revel in the action of the weekend. JR, Alex Pillow has wrapped up the IndyCar Championship at Long Beach. Uh, just wanted to start with a simple question of what has impressed you most about him in the two years in IndyCar, just to kind of kick things off here. I think you could definitely, you know, you could pick out a lot of stuff about the way that he's driven the car and his composure. And I mean, that's, that's an obvious one, I guess, for me is just his composure through this year. Um, but I, I think for me, it, it's a little bit beyond that, which is just his, I've just loved kind of getting the, a little, the little insight into his general attitude. Um, I think it's, it's inspiring to see a guy come in Obviously, you know, it, last year, his year with Dale Coyne, you, you expect a driver to come into that situation. Nobody knows who he is. He doesn't have, there's, you know, he's, he does have something to prove, I guess, but you're, you're sitting in a pretty low pressure situation, I guess, in that, in that scenario, um, goes out. The 500 is obviously what caught everybody's eye last year, including Michael and Chip Ganassi. Um, and then, but then this year to, to get in this car, to get in a championship contending car with the championship contending team with a six time champ as your teammate and have such a loose and positive and just kind of free attitude about the whole thing is, is really cool to see. It's not something that we typically see from it. It's, it's not something you just see from race car drivers, frankly, all that much, um, you know, the guys that are in those positions tend to be, I feel like they lean more towards like the Dario Franchitti end of the spectrum, which is like hyper serious and, uh, you know, very determined. And you kind of get a little more of that, that type of vibe. So, uh, a great, a great style of champion to have, I think for IndyCar, um, he's obviously been, just welcomed with open arms by the team. He created a, a, a vibe and an attitude there within not only the 10 crew, but I think within the organization that I, I, I'm sure, I don't know. I don't know that I've not talked to anybody about this, but I'm sure made it like hard to root against him, you know, even, even in terms of the intro team dynamics, when you've got Scott and some of these other guys there, Eric Marcus. And, um, you know, I think it makes it, it makes it easy to get along with everybody when you bring that type of uh, personality and attitude to the table. So uh, I just think that's it's a it maybe a weird thing to be impressed with. Uh, and it doesn't directly answer that question, but I think it's the thing that I've liked the most about watching watching him at uh, at Canasty this year. I've really enjoyed his his driving style and learning a little bit more about how that would translate from Coin to Canasty, and just that we kind of get lulled into this sort of uh, expectation that for a driver to be good or for a driver to be brilliant, that they they have to be sideways and driving the wheels off the car all the time, like we get with, you know, O'Ward and, and Herter and the likes of, you see they're on board and it's crazy. They're catching the, co- the car at every corner and, and things like that. Whereas with Alex, everything's much more serene. You know, there's, there's still oversteer, but everything's much more straight and kind of natural and just feels like when you're watching it, you could almost you know, settle in and just be really comfortable watching it. Whereas when you watch an award or Herter, you kind of feel like you're going to fall off a cliff at any moment. So I've really enjoyed seeing that contrary style and learning that 
you know, just because Herta and Award maybe their ceiling is is higher because of what they can extract from the car, it's absolutely fine to be how Polo is, you know, kind of studious and um, like a professor in his approach. You were talking about, you know, Dario Franchitti and the kind of, I guess, you know, he's kind of famous in IndyCar for his note making and, you know, carrying his notes around with him from years past and, and stuff like that. And you kind of get that vibe from Polo that he would do something like that. And yeah, I just think it's been great to see the opposite end of the spectrum to what we've seen with that's been so impressive about the likes of Herter and Award and, and to see, you know, that kind of um, a bit more reined in style, but still equally as quick. And when it's come to it and his car's been in the window, he's won the races and, and done the job. So it's equally as, you know, worthwhile. And I think when you, when you put it that way, it's, it's so fitting that he's Scott Dixon's teammate because you can, you can really appreciate how the two of them, maybe they came in with slightly different points of view or slightly different styles, but in terms of their approach and, and just that general fact that Scott's another guy that he might be driving the loosest car in the paddock at times. And you just kind of can't tell, like, you don't like, maybe I could tell if you let me watch his onboard for five laps or something, you're like, Oh my God. But, um, Alex seems like he's in that same kind of window that he's always got a measure of calm about him to be able to just kind of get through it and handle it. If it's got, if he's got a bad tire stint, it's not going it, to, he's just going to manage to be able to drive the car in a way that it's not completely off the deep end at any point. And, and then when it's good, he just takes advantage and it's there and it's not like a huge deal. So I totally agree. Yeah, definitely a popular champion. And it's always nice to see someone who, maybe struggle for backing early in their career or haven't, haven't got, you know, the resources that, that some people have to see those people graduating through motorsport. No, no matter how long it takes, you know, to finally kind of reach that end of journey is, is always a rewarding thing for any motorsport fantasy. So that's been really good to see. And we'll talk to Alex a little bit later on. He'll be joining us on the podcast. So make sure you stick around for that later in the episode. Before we do that though, we've got a whole race weekend to decipher at this point, JR and the, the weekend certainly just didn't disappoint from, you know, whether it was a warm up or a, <laughs> a practice session, there was action everywhere. I guess we'll start with Joseph Newgarden. He did absolutely everything he could to keep his title hopes alive as he took pole position, ending his kind of poor run of of qualifying woe as Colton Herter crashed uh, and started 14th, very out of character on a road course for him this season. In the race, Pato Award was taken out from behind on the last corner of the first lap by Ed Jones, having qualified eighth in controversial circumstances as he was bumped out of the fast six by drivers who looked like they were improving under yellow flags, although IndyCar said that they checked this and didn't dish out any penalties apart from for Ed Jones, who, who was dropped down. So that meant Pato Award dropped out of the top six graduated to the to the fast six at the end of the qualifying session and actually started eighth. So that really affected his race. Um, yeah, I guess back in the race, Colton Herter kind of predicted an early caution and pitted, having already driven from 14th to six at that point. So I think his, uh, he had the fastest race, the fastest lap of the race at that point. And that was in traffic, whereas obviously Newgarden was out front and was was quick, but not as quick as Herter, who, who was in traffic. So at that point, I kind of knew we had a race on our hands because the way the race was playing out, there was going to be some sort of battle towards the end. Uh, by the halfway point, he was leading the race by eight seconds, having started 14th. Sounds bizarre to say that out loud. After passing Dixon and streaking away from Newgarden. On the soft in the last stint, Newgarden closed back in, but Herter weathered the storm for a home victory. Behind Newgarden and Dixon, Polo took fourth, matching the leader's strategy and holding off a hungry Simon Pagano to guarantee the title. JR, we have to start with Oh, well, it's qualifying situation, I think. 
he and his team were very critical of IndyCar in that situation. But IndyCar said that it had checked the times and and that the, all the drivers had slowed down adequately in in that part of the track where there was a local yellow for Will Power who pulled off the track. Should Oward and Polo have finished their laps there? Do you think because the other drivers did and some of them kept their times? I guess with the benefit, I was so I was actually sitting in turn ten when all of that happened on the inside of the track in uh, IMSA hospitality that was sitting there. So we were sort of watching it all go down, which on the flip side, while you're seeing it all happen, you're also not getting a super clear perspective on how they're managing to like orchestrate all of this stuff. Um, I guess it, the, the correct answer here to your question is should a word have and Polo have finished their laps there. No, they shouldn't have because there was a standing yellow and there was a car that was off the track. So just nobody should have, um, but everybody did, and I, 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 so I haven't had a chance to go back and look at that in terms of like watching it on the telecast or on Peacock or whatever to actually review it. But it did strike us while we were all sitting there that the yellow seemed to come out pretty late. You knew it was going to affect a bunch of people's laps, and I, I guess my point of view, however it actually worked out, is there should always be a very like black and white you know, I, we have this happen at street circuits all the time. And basically if there's a yellow, you just know that your lap's not going to count. So if in any of these types of situations, people's laps do end up basically counting, um, that's something that definitely needs to get reviewed and, and just to be sure that we're not setting a bad precedent here, because that for me more than anything is probably the most significant concern is that, this needs to be in that particular situation. Will actually wasn't somewhere that was really in harm's way. Like you'd have to have something pretty crazy happen to end up crashing into Will Power while he was sitting there. He was still in the car, so it's sort of a low risk uh, yellow flag situation. But the flags are the flags, and that sort of needs to be respected. So you may have slightly better. Uh, you know, perspective on what exactly was going on there from watching it on TV. Um, but it did strike me while we were sitting there, it was kind of like, it was a surprise to see so many cars still coming through there at, at speed, basically as soon as power pulled off, it just seemed like the type of situation, like there should be a, there should immediately be a yellow. Unfortunately, there should immediately be a yellow and that should just be that. It, it took a, a bit of kind of, work it out after after the fact because the problem was that Arrow McLaren SP had a car that both benefited from the situation and didn't benefit from the situation because Felix had obviously gone through into the fast right. six and they were adamant that they had data in the team that basically proved that <laughs> that Felix shouldn't <laughs> have gone through. So they're kind of they're kind of balancing the rhetoric here by saying <laughs> We kind of know that one of our cars has done something wrong here and <laughs> we don't want to admit it because they go through to the fast six. But also we've got a car fighting for the championship, but we kind of need him to go through to the fast six to be in qualifying. So that was that was difficult to kind of sort of understand in the moment immediately afterwards because it, you know, it looked like when you added it all together that a load of cars had improved and McLaren were adamant that one of those cars, which was theirs, had improved. So it looked like all of them had kind of improved. 
But afterwards, you know, IndyCar said that they had looked at all of these times through the the kind of sector. And I suppose it's important to point out the rule at this point, which is 7.1.3.2 in the rule book, if you want to go and look it up, that as long as you slow your speed by 15% in the area of a local yellow, you can still improve as a whole on your lap. So uh, that's right. that's kind of what's happened. And it's it's a difficult one. Obviously, it's kind of Ari McLaren SP's word against IndyCars in this situation. But, you know, for IndyCar did dish out one penalty. So that makes me think they must have been looking at things very closely if they had penalised one driver and not the others. So uh, I kind of felt like IndyCar must have got the call right there. Obviously, we can't see the set the times and we don't know, but they're judging off a rule book. So uh, uh, it, was, it was a difficult one to kind of get to the bottom of. But I think, uh, yeah, I think maybe McLaren just kind of, Ari McLaren SP maybe needed to go back and look at the data even even more closely than they did in the kind of immediate aftermath of the event. I'm not sure, but I think that's probably what happened. And I would agree. We don't need to drag this on, but I would agree that, you know, I I would trust IndyCar to have looked at looked at all the sectors. And like you said, they did penalize somebody in that situation. It just seems like quite a bizarre set of circumstances for them not have been. Typically in these types of situations, anybody who completes that lap just doesn't get the lap. So it, I, I guess I felt like that was that element of it is what's making this uh, sort of hard to hard to swallow initially. It did have an impact on the race because Owell started further back than maybe he should have. And that meant he was kind of caught up in a first lap incident with Ed Jones, I've already mentioned. Maybe he was wishing Ed Jones hadn't gotten penalized after all that. Maybe so. <laughs> but I can't imagine um, after what happened in the race that Pato will be wishing that Ed Jones didn't get a penalty. <laughs> I've got to say that was one of the stupidest things I've seen in this IndyCar season was that was that move. I mean, uh, it was uh, it, the, the problem was obviously he was committed and at the point he was committed, there was no way to get out of that move and the the kind of result was always going to happen. But on the first lap at the last the last corner of the first lap, you shouldn't be making a move like that that involves the, the championship contender. And that was just a bizarre one for me. Well, we talked about this on like the pre-race pod that this is something that occasionally happens at Long Beach going into the hairpin and it's just sort of one of those things that it's like, okay, uh, like we have to just, it's just, it's going to jam up. There's a huge accordion going into the corner. You have to at least know that that's going to happen. We've all been here a bunch of times at this point. Like this happens every year at some point. And it's just such a, I mean, I don't even, it's not high risk from like, you know, you're, it's, it's it's like high dumbass risk factor. Like you're just gonna look silly when something goes wrong here, and everybody's gonna blame you, even if it was like a fairly reasonable move. Um, so I guess from that perspective, it was frustrating to see that early and obviously have it impact Pato's uh, Pato's race so quickly. You know, even if even if Oward wasn't there in that situation, Ed Jones is asking James Lynchcliffe whether he wants to crash or not in that situation. Like. The decision at that point is all down to James Hinscliffe as to whether he wants to give Ed Jones room or not. And I hate moves like that. I love aggressive overtaking. It's my favorite part of motorsport. It's obviously one of the reasons why we all tune in every week. But I hate moves that put the decision whether to crash or not in the hands of the other driver who has to decide, do I want to be crashed into by this guy who's behind me or do I, do I want to lose a position? Like, I hate those moves. They're, they're right. a lose-lose all around. And it's it's really frustrating. But it's even worse when... You know the person involved is is a championship contender. It, obviously, Pato managed to keep going, but then it what looked like some resulting damage from that incident took him out of the race, and then they got the car back in the race, but weren't really 
they couldn't finish the race basically after that. So that kind of took Pato Ward out of contention. We mentioned in the last episode that we feel like Joseph Newgard and Colton Herter are the only drivers who can kind of dominate a weekend from start to finish at the moment. Uh, we talked about that quite a bit on the last week's pod. So make, make sure you go back and listen to that for the, the kind of reasoning and the justification behind that that we went into last week. What did you make of Herter's drive, JR? Because uh, I guess it kind of, for me, it's perfectly summed up his season. Um, you know, he made the mistake in qualifying, which kind of sums up some of the the kind of mistakes that we've seen from him this year. And then in the race, he was just absolutely supreme um, and and a little bit of good strategy to be on the, the reds in the middle of the race when everyone else was fuel saving. But other than that, you know, that was just a, a pure drive from him, I thought. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel, I feel fairly vindicated in our general point of view this year. Even, even I think we mentioned at one point that Colton was the only, was the one guy coming into this final stretch that was capable of going, you know, pull lights to flag win at any of these races. And he, yeah, I think he would have done it here had he not made a made a small mistake. And hundred percent. With that being said, they were on a sort of dicey strategy call in qualifying anyway. Like they were, they were definitely a little greedy with that one way or the other. I think they were. It struck me watching it from being there that they were trying to get through on blacks, and then sort of realized that at the last minute, like maybe this isn't going to work. He pushed a little too hard on his last lap for blacks didn't have enough time to come back in get in get the reds on go back out get him up to temp you know he was he was one lap away from having like a proper lap on reds after all of that was said and done um but you know with that being said at nashville they managed to do that and it played out for them so you know you can see where that was in the back of their minds that they felt like maybe they had that much of an advantage at a place where the reds and the blacks weren't weren't quite as far apart uh, either way. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that we've seen this a couple of times this year from Colton. Um, I, I don't see any reason why this is going to like go away. And I felt like between, you know, for to have he and new garden be the two up at the front. I do think frankly that new garden was holding up Dixon during the race. I think that Scott, if Scott had gotten around Joseph, uh, I think that he would have pulled away, but the, the drive from Herta was was the same as what we've seen in Lee's last couple of races. It's it's I mean for me watching it, it's the same. It's the same, I guess, overall like look and feel that the car has from the in car. It's just, as as a race car driver, it makes me want to go drive that car because it just looks it looks stable. It looks sorted. He's able to drive the hell out of it when he needs to, and it doesn't. It's not like all over the map. The, you know, you can just see through the steering wheel that he's, it's always got that little bit of reactivity to it. You know, he's not bending into the corner and just starting to plow or, you know, whenever you see, we see that little bit of movement throughout the entire corner through his hands, you know, that the front of the car still has pretty good feel for it, but he was never, you know, we even saw, you know, there was a moment where they had, um, Pelos in car going into turn one and he had like a little bit of rear lockup, a little bit of instability at corner entry. You don't ever see that from Colton. And part of that, again, is something that driving style can affect that. You know, you can drive the car in a way you can kind of break and break through the center of the braking zone and release the brake in a way that reduces your likelihood of having that happen. But that's, that's a technique that at this point, any of those guys up front can throw at their, you know, kind of driving a perspective through a race. Um, and it just doesn't look like 
it doesn't look like Colton's car is predisposed to having those types of little things that keep you from being able to just pound the laps. And so it was obviously the right call for them to go to reds and pull a gap. I was concerned for him that when they had that yellow, uh, kind of shortly into, you know, whatever they were a quarter or a third of the way into the final stint and it closed everybody up. Um, you know, he's out there on blacks, new garden and, uh, and, and Dixie are on reds. I guess I was assuming at that point that Colton was going to be under fire for the entire rest of that stint and probably get past mainly just based on the fact that when he was on reds and everybody else was on blacks, he was just completely sticking it to everybody. And it didn't really seem, you know, you're relying at that point on his pace and practice thinking like, okay, well maybe he's just got two or three tenths on everybody, you know? And that basically proved to be the case because it took Joseph a long time, even just to catch up to him, basically. Like he pulled a gap and you'd have never known that any, that either of them had an advantage or a disadvantage from a tire or, or strategy perspective. So that to me is more than anything that just says he had some time banked on everybody and was going to win this race like one way or the other. I, I figured him for like a podium before the race. Cause it was just like, he's, clearly good. This track does have passing zones. The push to pass goes a long way to being able to actually get around guys. Um, but I, you know, even, even his drive, the way that it was to, to win the race was unexpected to me. Yeah. It's, it's really nice to see the kind of aggressive young drivers that we've got coming through. And, you know, I always, uh, I'm always hesitant to use the term changing of the guard because, to, to me, a changing of the guard is when these guys win two or three championships and, you know, win many, many races in a year. Not just that, you know, one of them turns up and wins one race and then suddenly there's a change into the guard. That's that's not it for me. But I think obviously we've seen Alex win the championship this weekend. This weekend we could talk we could talk a lot more about Alex, but obviously we're gonna speak to him later on in the in the pod. So we'll kind of uh, hold on for that. But yeah, just along with him and Award and Herter, just some great young drivers coming through. We've seen BK win a race this year as well and potentially you know, if he can have some consistency, he's going to be up there as well. So a really sort of nice kind of vibe that we've got for fighting for championships in the future. And I guess another element to that are the, you know, two of the rookies that we've talked about quite a lot this season. And I guess we should start with Scott McLaughlin because I don't think we've discussed him in, in the previous weeks, but I feel like he's been, you know, the last sort of four or five races, I feel like he's been chipping away at it quite strongly and the results maybe haven't quite been there, but he looks much more comfortable in the car and that, things are coming to him a little bit easier than, than before. It's an outstanding achievement to win Rookie of the Year this year, even if he is the only full-time rookie, just because I, I guess I'm looking at this more from a just from a results perspective as opposed to winning Rookie of the Year. But I think people are all too quick to forget that he has basically no single-seater experience. And although he's raced in a very high-level championship like supercars, that doesn't mean he automatically should come into IndyCar and be very good at it. And he's he's done something that, you know, Indy 500 and, and and previous Indy 500 winners and previous champions haven't done this year, which is score a podium. Um, you know, for me, I think his his first year has been been really underrated. He'll he'll have a new engineer next year as as Jonathan Dugood moves to the sports car program. Do you see this as a bit of a? I kind of wanted to open this up to a bit of a, a kind of wider perspective here. I just wonder if you see this as being like a critical time for Penske because 
there's enough problems for them to kind of solve on the IndyCar side with the, the performance in the Indy 500 over the last two years. And obviously they've been beaten by Ganassi for, for two seasons in the championship now as well. So, you know, the sports car side of things developing with, with Porsche is, is going to be a distraction. And we've already seen that now with, with Jonathan moving away from, from Scott to work on that program. So do you feel like we're going to have a situation where there might be, you know, Penske might be biting off a little bit more than they could chew at this point and uh, that, that's going to hold them up next year? I'm not sure I would put it that way. Cause I think that they're, they're quite uh, a well-equipped organization to manage these types of things. They're used to having a lot of different things going on all at once. So I think from an operational perspective or, or a, you know, I guess from that point of view, I'm not, I don't have concerns about it, but the, the earlier sort of thought and question is whether or not this is a critical time for Penske as an organization in the IndyCar paddock. I would absolutely say yes to that. Uh, it's important for, you know, new gardens in the prime of his career. Um, Will power is, you know, they've re-signed him and he's still got plenty of juice left to be able to move up. And they've got Scott there who, Potentially, he's younger than both of those guys. You know, he could potentially be a big part of the future of this team. Um, but for all three of those guys to kind of reach their full potential, I guess we could say that, you know, they all need to, as a as an organization, it seems like they need to take a half step. They need to level up by a half a step here, just in terms of the consistency with which they're up at the front. The performance that we saw from Ganassi as an organization is what we're sort of used to seeing from Penske over the course of the last decade. Let's say, you know, you're used to seeing all, all of those guys, whether it's three cars or four cars or whatever, all within a 10th of each other battling for top six and battling for podiums at the end of the race. And it's worth noting, I guess, that the IndyCar series just overall over the last 10 years has gotten more competitive. There's more cars, more drivers that fill in kind of that space, but it's hard not to look at Penske's results from this year, just through practice, through qualifying and race at every track that we've gone to and really feel like as an organization, they're super strong and dialed. You know, they've been with, with the different drivers, they've been kind of all over. There's always been somebody who's been fast and in contention, but it's, I think, it just at a at a glance or or sort of quickly looking back at it this season, it has seemed rare that all three or four of their competitive guys at an event are up there together. And so we've seen it at times. It just it feels like as a group, they need to find a little bit of something to to pull it together. And that's what Ganassi has done. They found something that's clicked. When we look ahead to next year, it seems like Andretti could be on track to find a bit of the same thing. Um, uh, you know, when you look at their lineup with Grosjean and Colton and Alex, and, and then on the shank side with Pagano and Elio there, whoever ends up being the fourth car again, if they can kind of all get along together, which if morning warm up at long beach is an indicator, maybe they won't, but the, uh, the general perspective here is you, you're going to have these groups of drivers at big teams that are elevating the whole and Penske, you know, uh, Penske basically just needs to be able to do that. However, they look at that. They need to be able to do that the same as Ganassi's done and, and the same as Andretti potentially could do. So um, it's not, they've done it a million times before in the past. They're, they're totally capable of it. They've got a lot of 
a lot of great people there, but, um, with the sports car thing coming into play with everything else they have going on, it's particularly important, I think, for the IndyCar team to be able to do that now to get ahead of some of those changes. So obviously going back to McLaughlin, he won the, won the championship, uh, the, the rookie of the year championship. Uh, 20 points was the gap going into the race from Roman Grosjean. It looked like Roman was going to have a maybe a, let's call it a top six or a top eight there. I mean, it, yeah. it, it basically worked out that the later you took your first pit stop, the worse off you were in the race. And he wasn't among those people who, who took the first stop. So he was always going to lose a bit of ground, but he was fourth at the point at that point. So with a different strategy call, you know, maybe there was a podium in it or a, or a top four, but I think realistically on the strategies that they chose, it was top six or, or a top eight, let's say, but clip the wall and caused a little bit of damage there. So not the best end to his Dale coin racing career. We can now finally say, but it's official that Roman Grosjean will race for Andretti next year in a two-year deal, driving the DHL back number 28 car. Go back and listen to the crossover episode that we recorded last week with Ed Straw to find out a little bit more about Grosjean's deal and how he's kind of worked his way in at Andretti there. JR, in the it, while you were speaking there, you kind of raised the the points about the, I guess, let's go to the warm-up point first. Um, we saw one of the angriest out, outbursts in, in years, probably in IndyCar from... Hello, Cash Neves at the weekend, who was incensed with Alexander Rossi for not letting him pass in the warm-up. And uh, I just wanted to ask you about the the kind of balance that Andretti are going to have to strike now with with this team, because you know, just looking at that, you know, we spoke last week about the the level of performance we're expecting from this crew and the fact that they've got Hello Cash Neves and Simon Pagino alongside Roman Grosjean, Alexander Rossi, and Colton Herter in the debriefs next year. But this this was a kind of for me a kind of window into looking at next year, how this could also backfire or potentially be just a difficult situation because with that level of success that you are employing in the same team there, you're also bringing in a lot of egos. That's just part of the game and it's natural and you don't get to the level that these drivers have, have reached without having a, a certain level of ego. But we saw these two kind of fighting over the the, the same piece of real estate in the warm-up, which is just bizarre. Really. It wasn't even a race or a qualifying session. It didn't even mean anything, but you know, Rossi was making a point that Helio seems to kind of jump in line, I guess he was accusing him of in the, in the past few races and not really respecting a kind of gentleman's agreement when you kind of go out and kind of move around on track and and kind of keep the order. So I guess that was his kind of counterpoint that he wasn't really willing to let Helio do this again. But, you know, for me, Rossi was coming out of the pits and it looked like Helio was on a fast lap. So uh, I guess, I don't know, it was a difficult one. There, there, was, there was even disagreement in the obviously on the Peacock TV booth with, um, you know, Paul Tracy and Townsend Bell kind of disagreeing over who they thought was at fault for that incident. But yeah, I guess, how do you think that's going to play out next year and, and the kind of egos they're going to have to manage there? Yeah, I guess to speak about the incident just briefly, I thought, it was, I mean, I was sort of hilarious to watch it. Um, you know, I think that in the morning warm up, you're sort of preparing, you're preparing for the race. So you treat those situations like you would in the race, which is, that you're not, you don't let somebody buy when they, I mean, he, it, like Alex could have let him buy, but where El, Elio caught him super late, like in the breakings, like Alex was well ahead coming out of turn one. Like it wasn't like they were, it was, it wasn't a merging issue, which is typically, I think where, okay, you it's morning warm up, not the race. Like I'm not going to block him going into the corner. Elio stuffed it in from like four car lengths back on the outside going into the hairpin. Like, I don't know. To me, it was just, it was a bizarre choice on his part to decide to do that. Like you could equally say to, to Elio, it's just morning warm up. Like 
what are you doing? There's a, there's a car there. You don't, you don't really know what Alex is going to do. He clearly hadn't let off to let him by before the tightest part of that corner. So I thought it was sort of strange that he was just firing it in there. Um, so I, I was, uh, I was probably more on the Alexander Rossi side of the fence when that was all said and done. And Elio does have, I've, I've been on the, uh, receiving end of this. The Elio does tend to have a, a point of view that he's, you know, he definitely thinks he's right all the time. And a lot of times he is, and he is a four-time Indy 500 champion now. And as much as that pains some of us to say it's the case and, uh, it just is the deal. But I mean, I'll, I'll give you a little anecdotal story, which was, I don't know if it was, it was like 2016, maybe that in the race in, in the 500, uh, I was catching up to what I was running sixth or seventh or something. And Elio was, Elio was, was the car right in front of me in line. New garden was right ahead of him. I think they were like fourth, fifth, and I was sixth and, uh, they were sort of side by side coming out of turn four. I had a huge run on both of them came out of the corner pulled out, was going to pass both of them basically like before the attenuator, like they were both going slow because they had gone through the corner side by side. Um, came out, had a big run on Elio. He moved over a little, right. As I was pulling out to pass him, I clipped him, pulled his, you know, rear fender pod thing off. Um, and it, you know, ruined his race. Like he was, he had to pit to replace the back end of the car or whatever. And, uh, and I was, I was sort of like at the time I it's, it's all, it's like a bang, bang thing. Like it happens super fast. You don't really know exactly, you know, what's going to happen in those kinds of situations. Um, but we didn't get penalized. They obviously were, they were going to, it was late in the race. I think it was last stint or, you know, two stints to go or whatever it was. So my point of view was like, well, if they didn't penalize me, then he must've done something wrong. And I must be in the clear basically. And at the end of the race, he was like, just going off the deep end about how I had cost him his fourth Indy 500 win. Like, and I'm like, dude, you, for one, you were in fifth. Like you weren't even leading the race. Like you were not, I don't think he were, you, he wasn't like going to win the race anyway, from my perspective, it's there's 40 laps to go. So for you to just say that you were going to win at that point is abs- completely absurd from my perspective. Like there's, you know, there could have been like a alien spacecraft landing on the track that ended the race earlier or something at that point, like anything can happen with 40 to go. Um, and, and just would not let it go. Like he was literally losing his mind when I, I, cause I wanted to try to talk to him about it when the race was over and I was going to be apologetic. Like, Hey, I don't really think this was a hundred percent my fault, but I didn't mean to cut it that close. And then I ended up watching the replay. I saw Ari Leindyke after the fact. And he was like, well, yeah, it was obvious that Elio just, the reason that you clipped him was because he moved over on you right before, like right as I was pulling out to pass him, he moved over, which was, they considered a block. And that was that. Um, but it, it's, it's a, it's a lousy situation that you have to be able to recognize that the, 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 the correct scenario here, like the way that this doesn't happen is between it, it, it's, it's like, it's somewhere between where you and Alexander are coming from. Like you can't possibly think that this is just a hundred percent his fault, you know? Um, but it, it is how he is. And 
it's obviously it's gotten him this far and it's, you know, it's gotten him to be a four-time Indy 500 winner. So you can't fault him for, for having such a fiery point of view. I do think to actually answer your question that there, I do have some, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't have any skin in the game here, but I'd be a little concerned looking at all of this. If I was at Andretti Autosport for next year, just it's a lot of drivers. It's a lot of drivers with different that just from the outside, you can, clearly say that they have different personalities. I don't look at Alex Polo and Jimmy Johnson and Scott Dixon and Marcus Erickson and think, man, these guys are like all over the place. You know, they're not going to get along. You think, okay, they're different guys, but they all seem pretty like cool and collected and they, they kind of know what's up and they're pretty studious drivers and, and all this kind of stuff at it between Andretti and Shank. I'm, I'm not, you certainly wouldn't have that same perspective on them. So it's, it's, it's a scenario, particularly within the Andretti camp. I feel like that, that could be really strong. Those three guys that we know are going to be there as a group. I, I don't know that they're necessarily going to be helping each other out a lot. And, and I, and it, it makes me wonder where Simon kind of fits into the whole thing, because I think that if you removed Elio, I actually think Simon would be quite a good addition to the rest of the Andretti crew. Um, but with Elio there, you know, he, maybe he takes kind of Elio. It's, it's hard for Elio not to sort of take center stage. I feel like in those types of discussions, if he's got a really strong opinion. So um, it, I'll, I think that's in terms of intra team dynamics, that's the most interesting one for us to attract going into next year. Sure. And we can say now with certainty that Simon Pagano will be in the Myers Racing Car for next year, announced on Monday. So we know that to be fact, even though we knew it to be fact anyway. So that doesn't change much, but at least we can say, you know, with an official announcement now. So that's worth covering off. And I'm very excited to, to see how those kind of intra-team dynamics, I think you called it, work out next year. That'll be very interesting indeed. So I think we've covered the kind of big news stories and events from last weekend. Uh, JR, this isn't the end. We have plans to come back with more storylines that we want to hit from the the kind of a little bit from the second half of the season, a bit from the whole season. Uh, but we wanted to say thanks to everybody who's listening this year and for all your feedback. Please continue to keep that coming. Please keep commenting, leaving likes and whatever it does, whatever you do with podcasts, rate them or whatever that kind of thing is. Uh, it's been really enjoyable to do this each week and your insight, JR, has been fantastic. So thank you as ever for that. So yeah, it's not goodbye. It's uh, it's just a thank you for, for a great season and we'll be continuing through the off-season with episodes. So that's good news. We'll take a quick break now and we'll come back with Alex Pillow. So Alex Pillow, IndyCar champion, does that sound weird still or has it uh, sunk in a little bit now? <laughs> Sounds pretty amazing to be honest. But um, yeah, super happy man on the season we did and especially yesterday. Yesterday was a big day. Um, we... We, we were able to, to close this season on a high. Um, I think we've been super consistent and super, um, super, yeah, just super fast during the whole season. So we needed, we needed that championship. There's been a, a lot made of your ability to stay cool and kind of cope under pressure. Did you feel any nerves at all going into that championship finale or were you quite comfortable going in? Well, obviously, there's um, a little bit of nerves added. Um, you always feel a bit nervous on all the races. Um, this is a good thing, um, just because you, you're going uh, to, to fight for a championship in any car, so it's a big deal. But uh, yeah, I was I was calm. I I knew that we were ready for it. 
um, and I knew we we could be in charge of it, like we could manage, and and it was all up to us. We didn't have to um, to do something special yesterday. We just needed to do a normal race uh, and and just finish wherever we we needed uh, in the top ten, and and we were able to 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 actually score a really good result while being a bit conservative. So I'm um, really happy about that. Obviously, you've got along well with Pato and you kind of know him from when you were competing in, in Super Formula and I'm sure you weren't happy to see kind of how he went out the race at the end there. But do you think kind of people watching IndyCar now and and, and kind of seeing this gas, I know rivalry is kind of like sometimes a negative word, but I guess you're both fighting to win the championship, right? So it is a kind of rivalry. Do you think that's going to be a good thing for, for IndyCar in the future between you two? It'll be a, a good battle between the pair of you? Yeah, so I I actually felt uh, really sorry. Sounds weird, but I felt sorry uh, for him. I I thought it was not fair. Obviously, um, it was not his mistake, and and I wanted to fight on track, right? Like that's what you want to fight with your biggest rival on on track. Um, but um, yeah, getting back to we get uh, really well to each other. Um, I guess because we both speak Spanish and we both met in in Japan, so we have a really good relationship going. But yeah. I think we're going to be fighting for a long time uh, here in IndyCar and and I think it's going to be a great uh, rivalry. I guess there's so many people on your team, like your, I guess your engineer, Julia Robertson, your crew chief, Ricky Davis, and your strategist, Barry Wanzer, and all these kind of people um, who I'm sure people will know their names anyway from from the kind of previous championships and, and wins and th- things like that. But And so many helpful teammates as well that you've had across the, the course of the season. If there's anyone you could pick out who's been the most important to you this season, who has it been? There's not been only one, man. I couldn't have done it without Barry on my radio there uh, telling me to, to drink some water and, and to stay smooth. <laughs> but, uh, uh, couldn't have done it without Ricky Davis either. So um, I think every single person in, in my car and in the team this year, uh, it's it's been um, amazing and they've been able to give me what I needed. So I wouldn't change any of those persons, um, and I hope they 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 can stay with me for a long, long time. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a great relationship with all of them. But yeah, I think having Barry, Ricky, and Dario also, and Julian, um, the team I had this year was just insane. I guess you like the team knew from basically the first test that you were going to be really competitive for them and, and delivering, you know, kind of strong results. But, you know, when did it kind of hit you that, you know, what you've just talked about, something really special was happening between all of your teammates, all of the the people behind the scenes, you know, everyone who kind of made this team kind of special. When did that first really hit for you? Was it was it in preseason testing at the same time as, as kind of Ganassi or was it until the first win at, at Barber that really that kind I of I think already during our preseason testing. So we... We went to different tracks as some other uh, teams, so we couldn't really compare to other teams. But the good thing is that we had the champion in our in our team, right? So um, when you can compare to Scott Dixon, everything it's a lot easier. Um, and and I knew we were good as a team. We were all really close. We all went on the same direction with the car, which that just elevates the the level of the, of the car. Um, because everybody's pushing towards the same thing. And, and I knew that Marcus was like running super fast. Scott, obviously, uh, we were pushing a lot. And, and Jimmy, obviously, was just getting up to speed. But um, we had lots of info um, to, to collect uh, during each session. So I, I knew that there was something 
uh, really good to happen this year. And having three cars in the top six in the championship with, I don't know what, six wins uh, for the team this year. It's been, I think it's been amazing for the team overall. I guess you must feel like your kind of journey has been justified as well. The the kind of decisions that you've made along the way, because obviously quite early on, you you kind of maybe thought that Formula One wasn't going to be for you and it wasn't going to be the, the right kind of journey for you. And I guess you watched IndyCar when you were quite young and kind of identified that as the pathway that you wanted to take. And I guess the, the result yesterday kind of is the kind of, maybe not the end because you obviously want to score, you know, more success in the future, but at least a kind of proof that you were, you were kind of correct in, in the journey that you've made. Yeah. Um, I mean, I already kind of proved it once uh, I got to IndyCar and, and even more once we got the chance to drive for Chip Ganassi Racing. But um, yeah, obviously we're not we're not even close to done yet. Um, we got one ring, but would be nice to get a couple more. Um, and we have some some years to go. So um, I just feel like uh, yeah, we we accomplished uh, a big goal, um, and this just drives us to to accomplish another one, which is to get another championship next year and and fight for the Indy 500 again. And before I let you go, I've got to ask you one more kind of a little bit left field question. I, I think this might be, but when I was watching you kind of compete earlier in your career, I always, the one thing I always thought about you was that you were amazing in the wet. And that's always been something that you've been very good at, even from like back in the karting days. I just wonder, does it kind of feel weird maybe getting to the end of your first kind of major championship, having not done a wet race, because that's always like yeah, kind that- of where you succeed in the wet. Yeah, it's it's true. I I feel like we we're, we're really strong in the wet. Um, so I'm never scared about having a wet race. Um, and normally being a 17 race calendar, um, you expect that at least two or three weekends are going to be on the wet. But we had not even one session on the wet. So it's been weird. Um, and I hope next year we can get some some mixed conditions, just because I think we. We can show something else there. Um, there's a lot of other drivers that are going to be there as well. But um, I think it's fun to drive on the wet and especially in the cars. Thanks so much, Alex. We appreciate your time. All the best and congratulations on your success in, in 2021. And we wish you all the best for, for next year as well. Thank you so much, Jack. Always fun to be here. <laughs>